Stanford University. Because we got a big problem. We have a huge problem. We, our aspirations have gone up as a country. They have to. We have to produce a different level of outcome for every single possible child that we can in order to even hold ground to where we expect our quality of life to be. There's a myth that is propagated throughout this country, which is that America is falling behind, and that is not true. The truth of the matter is that other countries are just passing us by while we stand still. If you look at every chart, that's what it looks like. Post-secondary completion. We're still, they're passing us by. So there's two lessons in that. The first one is that um, we better get on it. The second is that the idea that, in fact, you can't move large systems to improve quickly, relatively quickly, is bogus because other countries are demonstrating that it's possible. When you have the will and you make the investments and you have the strategy and you execute, that's what we know well here at the GSB and with folks who come together between business and education. Now, the reason that I am so hopeful in this room is that we have not acknowledged the tension of needing to figure out how you bring these common, what need to be common skill sets together. Often these silos have sat outside each other, unwilling to recognize, oftentimes casting blame across at each other, as opposed to saying, how do we take the collective wisdom of what we actually know inside education and we understand and inside business and use it to solve the problem that is frankly the most important problem that we have to solve as a country. It sounds like hyperbole when I say that, but the reality is true and you've heard the president say it over and over again, even as a candidate. You'd hear him list out the issues and he'd be talking about the economy and energy and health and the wars, and he would always put back in education. And if you look at our policies, whether in the Department of Education or the Department of Housing and Urban Development or Department of Health and Human Services, education is at the center of each of the strategies. It changes lives, it changes communities, it changes prospects for entire regions and for our country. That's the game. So how does all this stuff come together? And in particular, why is this relationship with business so important? And despite the fact that I'm on camera, um, I'm going to be really blunt. There are three really important roles that business has to play in the context of education. The first one is just plain and simple, and it's become even more important over the last several years. The driving force of policy in this country is actually business. Locally, in states, and nationally. They invest tremendous, business invests a tremendous amount of resources in ensuring policies come out the way that they want them. And what's interesting is when I talk to CEOs and I say, many of you have spoken over and over again about the importance of education. Tell me, what percentage of your head of government relations compensation is tied to education policy? How many firms are you paying 
to lobby on your behalf, and how many of them actually focus on education? Now, this is a really ugly conversation, but it's real. And it's gotten more real, because guess what? Corporations can now invest in directly in elections. Let me take an example outside of education for a second. Let's talk about something like 2% tax cuts. 2% tax cut is worth about $780 billion over 10 years, almost $80 billion a year. Anybody know what the election cycle cost last time in 2010? Max $3 billion. Do the math. It's going to be really, really hard for anything that corporations don't think is important, that high net worth individuals don't think is important, to get done. It's just that simple. So business has to be about improving education. It has to be a priority in the advocacy agenda. It has to be a priority about policy. And in a more, in a more altruistic sense, at the local level, because we have such significant turnover and such dysfunction in boards, business is oftentimes the sustaining entity that can maintain an agenda over multiple years in a locality. Superintendents come and go. School boards and school board members in particular in urban communities come and go. Usually businesses, and especially the entities that represent them, are able to stay and sustain an agenda for a period of time. I see your faces, and everyone's looking at me like, this is not a fun speech. <laughs> but that is the first thing, is that business has a disproportionate voice in policy, in regulation, in what we hear about and talk about, and they need to exercise that voice responsibly on behalf of our children and on behalf of our country. The second thing, another reason this room is really important, the hybrid skill sets. As somebody who's crossed in between education and business, it's very interesting. I am embarrassed to say the courses I didn't take in both schools to make the dual degree program work. But even still, when I go into different, these different places, I'm always surprised at what, how little pure business people know about education. So everyone is an expert on education. Why? Because everyone went to school. Right. Everybody knows. But also, in education, we have folks who run large systems who had no exposure to the things that are pretty common in business training. How many education programs and education leadership programs have had significant management components? over the last three decades that emphasized change management, that emphasized systems thinking, that talked about the role of IT in transformation, that emphasized cost effectiveness and productivity, that talk about operating in a highly regulated and unionized environment. How many of our leadership programs in education have had that focus? You might know, but not many is the answer. And in fact, 
even when you look inside many school systems, the people who are responsible for those parts of the business, if you call it that, that look like that, many of them don't have that background either. They just happen to have been really good relative to everyone else that was around. We are now at a time where at the state level, at the district level, at the school level, there is a need for a level of change in management and operations effectiveness that is unprecedented. Our aspirations have gone up. The resources we have to work with have gone down. And by all estimations, for a period of time, will continue to go down. Market forces introduced by regulation are heating up. And they're going to continue to go that way. And we need people in there, either full-time or working alongside our systems, that know what that looks like that know how to lead that kind of transformation, that know how to benchmark performance, that know how to talk about cost effectiveness, that know how to implement large-scale systems, that know how to talk about performance feedback loops, that know how to think about compensation and incentive plans, that know how to transform segments to be competitive. Yet, if we don't balance those, with people who actually understand teaching and learning, who understand child development, who understand what actually the motivations and culture of education and educators are, we are doomed. We have seen it time and time again where the brash business person comes in to teach education how to do what they ought to know already and gets rebuffed, not only because they were arrogant, but because they were wrong. This room of hybrid folks is critical. Third, I've said it in different ways, and it is my job, but there is no way to get there from here without completely rethinking and innovating the system. We can't get there from here. I sat there with Mike Kirsch tonight. He talked about how California is going to go unprecedented from class sizes in the 20s to class sizes in the mid-30s. If you're in Detroit, you're talking about 45 to 60. Right? How are young people supposed to learn in that environment? Frank, let's step back from it. What, what made us think it was reasonable to send a teacher into a classroom of 20 to 30 students and say, you need to understand exactly what each student here needs. This is, by the way, one class. You probably have four. Each one needs, each one is interested in, and exactly the best way to teach them and match with the perfect content. And you know what we're going to give you to do that? We're going to give you a really clean whiteboard. In every other sector, we have figured out how to provide the professionals with the tools they need to do an excellent job. Technology has transformed other sectors. Entrepreneurship has transformed other sectors. And yet we have failed to allow it to do so in education. 
it will take hybrid skill sets to figure out how this is going to work. It's going to take people who actually understand what it means, what a learning progression is, what a good assessment looks like, what high quality instruction actually looks like, feels like. You can touch it and feel it when you walk in the room. And how do you create that in a context where you have to dramatically improve productivity? Where systems can transform the possibilities that you can offer each individual student. We already know what the research says. The research says that if we can deliver one-to-one -one tutoring for every child, then we can actually improve by about two standard deviations over whole class instruction. Pretty well researched study, Bloom, known it for a long while. What's the challenge? We haven't figured out the model to do it, and we can't afford it. But how close can we get? And how can technology help us? And then can we figure out if once we can do that, how we do it at half the cost? We need to, if you look at the president's goal of becoming number one in the world again on post-secondary completion, go from performance improvement trajectory that looks like this to like that. No other sector has figured out how to do that without radical transformation of every process and introduction of technology. It just hasn't happened. Is that true, Dean Sloaner? I only did okay in this class, so you know. <laughs> so why hasn't that happened in education? And how can this room make it happen? The forces are actually there. This conversation has happened before about how technology could actually change education. I think three things are different. The first is the forces at work. Just quickly. Digital content, cheap devices, broadband, basically ubiquitous in about three years, cloud computing, and big data. We will now be able to provide every child with a cheap device that's connected to a tremendous amount of capability, that's collecting data on everything that they do in ways that we can now analyze in ways that we never have before. There's no reason that every teacher walking into the classroom shouldn't have more information about each kid in that classroom than Amazon has about you because of what you bought last. <laughs> We're there. The publishers even know it. That's two. Every interest has a way of protecting itself. And because it is such a regulated and political process, if you look at the market distribution of companies, there's not a lot of education companies in the middle. There's a lot of early stage ones, and then there's three late stage ones. Come on, the business people are supposed to laugh a little more. <laughs> like, we know that, in fact, if we want this to change, there has to be a disruption in the marketplace. But monopolies know how to use regulatory processes to protect themselves. And, and our folks are among the best. They are among the best. And we support them with convoluted processes for things like curriculum selection. But we now have a world that is all about disruption.
and we have a context in which, frankly, everyone is ready to be disrupted. They have to be. You know what the deficits are in this state. They look like that in a lot of other states. And even where they don't look like that, in a lot of states, people are acting like they want them to look like that. So the context, there is a short-term window of opportunity to jump through it. And the last thing, we don't actually have a choice. And here's why. Other countries want to educate their children, too. They're trying to create their middle classes. They have not got the systems that we have. They don't have the schools. They don't have enough trained teachers. They can't get there from here the way that we did. They are going to find a better way. And by the way, they already have better broadband technology than we have. They have a better regulatory environment where people don't hold up prices. And content, it's going to be free. Like it's free already. The world as we know it is about to turn upside down. Where in fact, all the content is going to be free and it's going to be about what kind of value can you add with it. That means other parts of the world are going to suck into their systems everything that's available. Everything known to man is now on, on, known to man is now online. So the only way that we will maintain our competitive position is to lead the innovation curve. And when we do that, we'll do it not only for our country, but it will serve our diplomatic and developmental goals. We'll do it for the rest of the world. We'll have partners throughout the world that are driving this agenda. And I grew up at Stanford where we believe that if you grow the pie, everybody does better. But we got to do it. And I worry a lot. I don't know if I'm going to work on Saturday. I don't know whether we are really serious this time. I don't know if people know the difference between expenses and investments. I don't know if our businesses will walk the talk on where they spend their policy and advocacy resources. I don't know if the allure of consulting and investment banking will steal too many of you away. I don't know if the folks of you that are focused on education are going to be willing to make the changes that you have to make and ride out this really tumultuous time to see the transformation through. But the answers to those questions, a lot of them are in this room. And that's why I'm hopeful. So I'll go back to my job as a bureaucrat <laughs> with a lot less pay, <laughs> a lot. in the hopes that you will do what you have to do. And since I'm here at the GSB, I think it's a pretty safe bet. But I'll wait and look forward to thanking you in a few years. Thank you very much. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.